All right, all right. Welcome. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. For the next hour, I aim to entertain and educate you about music and causes that can enrich your life. A delicious mix of talking and music we call fun philanthropy or funlanthropy, where the desire to improve the welfare of others is combined with music and fun. Today you will meet saxman and singer Rob Somerville. You will also meet John Reed from Fairfield Theater Company, who works very hard to promote arts, music, and culture in our community. Uh, we'll be calling uh, Rob remote, but uh, hey, John, it's good to have you here. Good to be here. It's been a while. Uh, congratulations to Steve, by the way, on the the new WPKN. Looks fantastic here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to have you here. Yeah. That's it. You're listening to WPKN 89.5 on your FM dial, WPKN.org on your computer. And if you're live streaming via YouTube, it's WPKN Radio, the official YouTube channel. Uh, more on them later. I'm Rob Fried, and welcome to Band Central Radio, where we broadcast the fourth Monday of every month. Uh, right from here in Bridgeport, uh, but also on your audio device of choice anytime you want to listen via WPPN podcasts. And as I mentioned, the uh, the live stream on YouTube. We've got a great show over the next hour introducing you to Rob and John. And we also have WPKN General Manager Steve DiCostanzo here in the studio. Hey, Steve. Hey, Rob. Good to, good to be here. And I, again, I just want to say, uh, John, you know, you've had quite uh, a career at uh, Fairfield. Field Theater Company. I'm just curious, uh, talking about construction, uh, you have any other plans or are you well, pretty much finished now? <coughs> no, we're actually building. Build, building a permanent venue in the parking lot right now. And we just poured the uh, footing for that. So we're going to have a, st- we'll put a permanent stage out there. Really? Interesting. <coughs> we, we've yeah. already gotten a purpose-built sound system just for outdoors. We fenced off a whole lot. And so this time, we, last summer we did... Uh, Something called the Fresh Air Series, which was ten free shows to the public. So we'll do some free shows, but also some ticketed shows uh, starting oh, in the next that's few weeks. Great. Yeah, so, yeah, so we'll have a, a third, really yeah. a third venue third, now, third venue. All, all that diversifies. So we'll get into that in a minute. You know, fellas, cool. today I want to talk to you, and I want to talk to you. You know, dear PKN listeners, you know, your it's lunch break. Maybe you're here. We are on a Monday. Maybe you're driving on I ninety five or walking your dog at lunch or just sitting in front of. Uh, your computer. I want to talk to you about mistakes as I have been facilitating a workshop at the Westport Library called uh, The Magic of Mistakes. Let me tell you a little about it. So first off, you know, when I talk about things on air in my newsletter or in classes, in most places, I'm bringing up topics that I'm curious about, that I they want to explore with like-minded people. I'm not presenting myself as the expert, a master of the universe, any of that stuff, rather just a curious student. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was raised to pursue excellence and perfectionism And I developed compulsive tendencies in my youth, which meant that mistakes were fine if other people made them. Yet for me, I would have preferred not to make mistakes and simply be excellent. Um, Can you guys relate relate to that? (laughs) Sounds sounds familiar. Yeah, you know, as I entered life as a young adult, I had noticed the prevalence of mistakes. So the best hitters in baseball make an out two out of three times going to the plate. Right. Right? When I was a door-to-door Bible salesman in my youth, 
I would get three yeses for every 27 no's that I had. Mm. That's a lot of failure, you know, to get. And it was just part of the game. Was it was it both books or just one? (laughs) (laughs) I had Bible storybooks. I had the whole shooting match, but you could get what you wanted. Um, You know, and and in my time with uh, Ray Dalio, you know, my my mentor at the largest, most successful hedge fund in the world, we would be wrong on trades 30 to 40 percent of the time. Really? Yet still make money for our clients consistently. And so there was... A lot going on about being wrong. And then, you know, I also want to make a point that some of our world leaders used mistakes for iterating. And what I mean by that is Churchill, very famously, in the first battle with the Germans in World War II, he decided to have that battle be in North Africa. Why? Because he knew that they would likely lose. But he wanted to see what the Germans brought at him. And he wanted to, why lose on your own turf, Mm. you know? So here's a guy that, you know, kind of knew, lived with that notion of mistake. So this prevalence of mistakes led me to, over time, develop an attitude that I have that supports having a life making mistakes. And the first attitude is humility, knowing that there's a lot that I don't know. You know, when you think about it, 96% of the matter is called dark matter. That means they don't know what it is. So we understand 4% of the matter in the universe. 98% of our DNA is called junk DNA. That means they don't understand what it does. So there's just a lot we don't know, you know, when you think about operating in life. Then there's this mood or attitude of curiosity that... It's possible to actually look at the mistakes we make as just obstacles, but thinking about, okay, this is showing me what doesn't work so I can figure out what works. The third attitude I developed over time about mistakes is this idea of personal growth. At Bridgewater, we called it looping, which is this idea that you learn from your mistakes and then you come back stronger. And it's the point that it's not that you made a mistake. It's that, how did you respond to that? And did you learn from it? So, you know, even if you have a good attitude, you still need some skills. Some of the skills that I've been talking about in the workshop are, I've been using this hero's journey framework, which was, uh, you're familiar with Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, who, and he's a storyteller. But he, you know, you can actually view when you make a mistake, it's kind of like a guide. So, you know, when you you think of all the movies and all the novels that you read, you know, there's always the karate kid, but there's Mr. Miyagi, the guide, or there's uh, Luke Skywalker, but there was Yoda, the guide. Well, mistakes can be viewed as your guide. Um, And, you know, when it comes to personality growth, it's an easy thing to talk about, but it also usually involves some amount of pain Mm -hmm. and then reflecting and having some kind of breakthrough to the other side. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to get into it here on the radio, but it's something that we explore in my workshop. And then also my, my friend Ray Dalio does a, a really good job detailing that process in his, uh, his book, Principles. Um, uh, a couple other things that I would mention is that 
to, to, to view mistakes properly, it's important to develop a certain centeredness, a mindfulness, and it's, it's an ability to look at yourself from above so you're less reactive when mistakes happen. Um, so it's actually possible, the reason I call it the magic of mistakes is it's actually possible to learn to welcome and appreciate mistakes for the serendipity and the magic they bring to life. Right. You know, and so, you know, in music, which I know, you know, us WPKL listeners are very interested in that vein. You know, there's the famous quote by Miles Davis that there are no wrong notes. Right. We're familiar with that one. And then anybody who listens to the music of Jerry Garcia, we all know that Jerry unabashedly would make mistakes in his playing. But then he would make that part of the motif in order to explore it. You know, and so it's kind of like, and that's what brings some of the new freshness and ideas. So, yeah, let me I'm, let me I'm pause. thinking about that. You know, with music, you know, making mistakes, and sometimes it leads into a direction that it's not actually a mistake, but it, it's something that sounds um, like brand new, something that's been just discovered. And they thought it was a mistake, but maybe it was just a, a new chord or. Uh, a new modality. So um, you never know. You never yeah. know. Uh, I'm just interested in your guys' reactions to what I just said. If anything, you know, kind of resonated mm. for you, or if you have a personal story to share. You know, I'll tell you that <clears throat> about 25 years ago, I began advocating for a section on resumes that talked about failures. And because I, I used to work for some pretty big organizations, I had. Uh, Hundreds, sometimes over a thousand staff, and I interviewed a lot of people, you know, in the process and over time. And I noticed that all of us were wired to put your best foot forward, talk about all the great things you've done, talk about it. And one time in an interview, I've, I was listening to someone talking about a project. I said, did you ever fail at any of these? And the guy kind of looked, you know, stricken that I asked a question. And, you know, and I realized I'd caught him off guard. I said, not a trick question. I'm just curious what you learn from. And for me personally, I've probably learned more through a number of failures, um, whether it was just misperception, just a purely bad decision or whatever. But a lot of those times, that's how I've grown. And, and frankly, uh, you know, it's always great to say, oh, I, I finished that project on time within budget. That's great, you know, for the percentage of time you do that. But then what did you learn from it? And so I, I really have interviewed people. I say, so after you've told me some of this use, is there one project in particular that you just failed at? And can you tell me what you've learned? Some people go, oh, nothing comes to mind. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, you're about due. Maybe I should look all on <laughs> Let somebody else take that Let risk. Let someone take that one, right? How about you? How about you, Steve? Any you know personal uh, reflections? Well, I mean, because uh, it's it's a topic where we're also a little bit revealing something about sure, ourselves yeah. here to to our friends and listeners. But but it, it's, well, I think, it's worthwhile conversation. I, I think the point that I'm thinking about is uh, when you mentioned learning from your mistakes, because I have made a lot of mistakes, you know, in my life. I think we all have made a lot of mistakes, and 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 the only, uh, you know, the only uh, kind of positive takeaway is that if you've learned something that you can correct to some either attitude or behavior uh, and even sometimes unfortunately they may be uh, short-term gains but uh, I mean mistakes um, you know you've I, I can think that uh, one of my first careers was kind of a mistake uh, but in some respects uh, you know I'll, I'll 
uh, it was a good stepping stone. I mean, I, I got into banking early, and it, it just uh, wasn't necessarily kind of my personality. I mean, I I was uh, very dutiful and tried to do everything right, like you had mentioned earlier, you know. Uh, but I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I learned maybe quickly to pivot and go in different directions. But, uh, yeah, we, yeah, I mean, uh, kind of mistakes are the name of the game with uh, the human race, I think. Well, we're going to listen to uh, something here that's not a mistake. It's one of Rob, Rob Somerville's tracks with Kung Fu, Speed Bump of Your Love. We'll be right back. Listening to uh, "Speed Bump of Your Love" by uh, Kung Fu, featuring featuring Rob Somerville. You can hear him there playing sax and uh, and also singing there. Awesome, Rob Somerville. We're going to interview him in a minute. Um, but first, let me update you on Band Central. Band Central 
the uh, the nonprofit music organization that I uh, am the executive director and artistic director of. We're going to perform 14 themed concerts in 2023 to help local nonprofits. Our uh, spring tour features some amazing musicians, and I I want to read you the names because I'm I'm very proud of them and I like to promote them. Carol Sylvan, Gabrielle Lakshmi, Stephanie Harrison, Joe Bouchard, Joan Levy Hepburn, John Torres, Bill Carbone, Gray Fowler, Fuzz, Cyrus Madden, Anthony Gadaletta, Eric Cal, Pat Marfioti, Barry Blumenfield, Rob Somerville, Rob Volo, Marcos Torres Jr., Mike Marble. Tiger McNeil, Ronnie Sissia, Lou Bodak, Brad Helene, Brad Milov, Steve Redler, Pat Williams, Matt Bell, Jaron Varholak, and Tara Engler. And we're performing some amazing shows. Every season we perform different shows, kind of like a Broadway troupe. This year we're performing Spectrum of Rock, Flower Power, Songs from a Generation of Love, Funk and Disco. Steve was at a Funk and Disco show we did Thursday night at Park City. Spectacular show, by the way. Thank you. And and a To the Max reunion. And check out these nonprofits we're working with. Uh, The Kennedy Collective, Operation Hope, New Canaan Mounted Troop, Wolfgang, Team Wolfgang, that is, uh, Siri, Sterling House Community Center, Mission, CLASP. Children's Learning Center, Center for Family Justice, Fairfield Theater Company, Common Ground, Cardinal Sheehan Center, and our very own WPKN. And, uh, you know, we stand ready to help local nonprofits and musicians thrive. Here are some upcoming dates. On May 17th, this is to benefit Fairfield Theater. And it's going to be at Fairfield Theater Stage 1. It's the To the Max reunion featuring Joe Bouchard from Blue Oyster, well, the former member of Blue Oyster Cult. On the 19th of May, for New Canaan Mounted Troop, it's Jazz and Dance at Weeburn Country Club. On June 1st, for Team Wolfgang, it's Funk and Disco at the Park City Music Hall. On June 11th, for Common Ground High School, it's Jazz and Soul. It's a house party up in New Haven. On June 16th, for the Children's Learning Center, it's Jazz and Dance at Sarah Fresco in Stanford. And on July 29th, we're playing at the Connecticut Challenge Bike Ride at the festival at the Greenfield Hill Green. So you can visit Experience Band Central to sign up for our monthly newsletter, our tour dates, and follow us on Facebook at Experience Band Central. I also play bass and sing in some groups with an up- upcoming dates, and you can check that out at robfreedmusic.com. Joining us now is via phone is Rob Somerville. Rob, are you there? I'm here. Clear as a bell. <laughs> okay, good. I'm 500 miles north of Bridgeport up in the deep woods of Maine. You're making me think of that song, 500 Miles High. You're probably, <laughs> you're probably that, too. Hang on. Let me, let, me tell, let me tell everybody your bio first, then we'll get into this. So Rob is a saxophonist from Delaware, and he's most known around here in the Bridgeport area for his performances the past 30 years with Kung Fu and Deep Banana Blackout. Musically, everything started clicking for Rob when he was about eight years old when he got a recorder and he just started blowing into it. Um, 
Later, he studied music at University of Hartford, and during that time, he used to go used to go see a band called Tongue and Groove, which I don't know if you guys know, but they were one of the funkiest bands in Connecticut at the time with Andrew Gromuller, Jen Durkin, Dave Lavosi, and, and Eric Kalb. And, and Rob Somerville wanted to be in that band, and somehow he made it happen. And that <laughs> right, and that that band evolved into Deep Banana Blackout. Deep Banana Blackout, which got their real start playing at the Gathering of the Vibes, in a sense. Um, and that was a festival that was started by our good friends Ken Hayes and Bob Kennedy after the passing of Jerry Garcia. So Rob goes on to play with Schofield and Bill Evans, and he did a big tour with the Allman Brothers about 20 years ago where he got to sit in with them. Um, but, you know, I'm going to leave it right there. I'm going to just say welcome, Rob. Uh, it's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Well, you've you've got my bio down. That's that's pretty accurate. Okay, <laughs> good, good. But you know, one thing I don't understand is why saxophone. You were you were so good at recorder. Well, um, I you mean, could have picked you could have okay. picked, picked up mandolin. What were they playing in Delaware in those well, days? I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I I started on piano. And uh, and had a horrible piano teacher, and just was ready to throw in the towel. But you know, as a shy boy when I was young, I was painfully shy and wasn't really too good at sports. wasn't really like I didn't have a thing. And uh, in public schools, I don't know if they still do that, but in Delaware, they when you were in third grade, you were introduced to the recorder. And there was, you know, a music teacher in the school who would teach you music and syncopation. But for some reason, the recorder clicked. Like, it was the first thing I was good at you know, and realized that I was, like, you know, performing it, you know, advancing through the lessons much quicker than the rest of the students. So, basically, when push came to shove, like, fourth grade, you were you started band. And the summer before that, my mom was like, all right, you, you know, you got to play something. What do you want to play? And I was just like, I don't know, saxophone. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's a, it's you know, it's sort of familiar fingering to like what the recorder is. But I had also, you know, loved listening to some of my grandfather's records, and he had a couple that featured a saxophone player named Boots Randolph. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Boots Randolph, but he's he uh, most famously does the. Saxophone solo on rocking around the Christmas tree. You know, that's his boots Randolph. He also did this song called Yakety Sax, which in essence was the theme song to the Benny Hill show. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's you remember. So I just, I just thought that he was the coolest and you know, the pictures of him on the album covers with like the shiny saxophone. I just, you know, you know, took a chance and was like, you know, the saxophone. And there and there and the rest is history. We're we're listening to Rob Somerville uh, here on WPKN 89.5 FM on your dial WPKN.org if you're on the computer or we're live streaming at WPKN radio, the original YouTube channel. And uh, this is Band Central Radio, and I'm here in the studio with uh, John Reed from Fairfield Theater Company, Steve DiCostanzo, and we are talking to Rob. Um, hey, Rob, you know, we just listened to Speed Bump of Your Love. Can you just quickly tell us something about the track that we just listened to? <laughs> well, 
That song took was a long time in the making. I had had that idea for several years and just kind of let it simmer for a while. Was it the, uh, was it and, the speed bump of your love part or the music part? Uh, the speed bump <laughs> of your love. I mean, the concept of it was, you know, always in my head. And it's it's not a personal it sounds very personal, like I've, you know, but it's just kind of like a common experience of, well, that, you know, dudes who dudes who are chasing around, you know, girls who have no interest in them or whatever, and kind of wasting your time and getting over, wasting your time and moving on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you let's let's flash flash forward today. I I got to stand right next to you Thursday night when we played at Park City Music Hall. We played funk and disco. Um, Such a great night. I, I continue to get really blown away. I listen to you and Volo play together, it's, you know, you guys really transcend. So just give me an idea. What inspires you most right now musically? Uh, you, personally, uh, at yes. this stage in the game, it's, it's actually progress, uh, you know, for myself. I, you know, with the, you know, I'm not touring right now since the pandemic. Neither Deep Banana or Kung Fu are, are touring. So I've been able to spend a great amount of time recently practicing and undoing, you know, years of mistakes or bad technique and, you know, trying to relearn my technique and, you know, spending time on being able to progress as a musician and you know, as you get older, you realize there's a lot that you don't know and a lot that you can't do. And, you know, I'm just trying to constantly make sure that I'm practicing correctly. So, well, that you know, I it's interesting progress. You're not you're not here in the studio, but that was a big thing we just talked about. You know, in terms of the, the personal growth part of what you just mentioned and also kind of undoing parts of your playing and go back and slowly uh, improving and it shows that you're 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 like a craftsman. You know what I mean? You're looking at you're looking at this like a craft, like it never ends. You know, right? I mean, you know, I still have there's still tons to learn. You know, there's always you know something more that you can you know get better at, get cleaner at. You know, that's why I try to you know spend my time very focused on. Not just noodling around, not just mm. playing through stuff that I can already do, but, you know, actually very disciplined, focused practice on mm. stuff that I can't do. So yeah, well, and clearly, I'm, I'm, clearly. I'm, lucky, I'm I mean, lucky that I have the time to be able to do it right now and have been, you know, been able to be dedicated to that. So Yeah, and clearly... You know, the stuff that you guys do with Deep Banana. And by the way, Deep Banana will be playing at the Sound on Sound Festival in September, which will be pretty exciting. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But, but also with Kung Fu, there was a lot of, you know, precision, modern jazz precision combined with groove that meant that, you know, you guys were basically, you know, kind of an Olympic team, the way you, you approach play, play, <laughs> playing music, right? You know? Yeah, there's no doubt. I, you know, when I took that job and got that gig, <clears throat> excuse me, there was, you know, a lot of work that had to go into learning the material they were already doing. They had been together for about a year before I joined the band. Uh-huh. So, but it was, you know, after that that we started, you know, writing the bulk of our material, 
Yeah, and you found and, uh, you found something that really pushed you to your next you know phase ab- of ab- of growth. Absolutely, there was a few tunes that they played that I was like, I'll never be able to play that song. <laughs> you know, like you know, I don't know. As much as I practice, I'll never be able to do that. And lo and behold, you know, just like I was saying before. You know, you put the time in, you practice appropriately or correctly, and before you knew it, I'm playing this song that I just couldn't believe that I would, you know, could that I could perform, mm. that I could get through and do. So, yeah. Hey, Rob, this is uh, Steve. I just wanted to ask a quick question uh, in sure. terms of some of your role models uh, growing up in terms of uh, playing sax or even contemporary uh, sax players that you uh, feel are uh, kind of uh, artists that you weren't going to learn from? Right. Well, when I was in high school, I was in a very competitive jazz band. Our high school jazz band was very competitive. What so, part of the country were you in? Uh, this is this is in Wilmington, Delaware, Brandywine okay. High School, mm-hmm. Brandywine Blazers. There we go. And, you know, the bulk of the stuff we were listening to were all the, you know, big band stuff. But it was guys like Stan Kenton, Rob McConnell's, you know, Boss Brass, uh, Pat Williams Records. Uh, these are all like, you know, stage band, concert jazz bands. Mm-hmm. So I was really into that. Uh, but, you know, when I was a teenager, like I loved Michael Brecker. He was and and Branford Marsalis. Those two were just my favorite guys to check out and listen to. Uh, but then when I got to college, I was studying at the Hart School of Music with Jackie McLean. Mm. Uh, and he, you know, his contribution and his, he's just legend in, you know, the, in the jazz world. Right. And, and had this program at the University of Hartford and just learning not just the music and the notes, you know, from him, but the experience of you know african american music of african american history of you know the black american experience you know beyond just music like and learning it from somebody who lived through you know the bebop era with miles davis and you know charlie mingus and everybody that he played with art blakey you know just being around him and understanding the the seriousness of the music that that really moved me into studying you know, you know a bit more jazz names like Dexter Gordon and and it's it's interesting Leslie rob it's, those guys. it's interesting rob that i can hear that in your playing there's a deep there's a depth and a tone place that you come from that's not like a guy blowing a contemporary uh contemporary jazz sax you know there's something that takes me back when i hear your sax playing, and I think I think it comes from these roots that Steve, you know, Steve uh, helped you dig up. Hey, um, I want to thank you for uh, spending a little time with us here. Um, how can how can listeners who want to get to know you either find you on social media or a website or anything like that? You know, if, if people wanted to reach out to you. I mean, you know, Facebook is there, Instagram is there, you know, the Kung Fu websites, the Kung Fu pages, or the Deep Banana pages. Uh, you know, right, I'm, not, so- I'm, I'm not super, you mm-hmm. know, involved in a lot of it. You know, I just post stuff randomly or let people know when I have gigs or stuff. But 
I'm definitely, you know, on both of those platforms and available. And I would say if you want to see Rob Somerville up close and personal, come to our June 1st event at the Park City Music Hall for Team Wolfgang. That's to benefit uh, young adults with development disabilities. You won't be disappointed. Um, Rob, I want to thank you for your time. Have a great yeah, Monday, so and we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. All right, great, Rob. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. You, you too. Bye-bye. Wow. So you know what we're going to do right now? We're, we're going to go right into our interview with John Reed because I had some other things I wanted to do, but I, I want to just start talking to John. Um, you're listening to WPKN 89.5 FM here in Bridgeport, um, WPKN.org and WPKN Radio on YouTube, the original YouTube channel. So, John... You know, while working in the humanitarian field, decades before he became one of Fairfield County's um, leading live music presenters, John Reed always had a strong passion for the arts. He he worked for um, international relief agencies, uh, CARE, as the chief uh, technology officer from 1986 to 1996, and then as the chief operating officer for World Vision. He also led nonprofits supporting children's health and welfare, such as Families First, Child Help, and the Hole in the Wall Foundation right in our neck of the woods here in Connecticut, the, the Paul Newman Foundation. In all his roles, his guitar was never far from his side. John's love for the arts, particularly music, remains very much alive to this day. And besides being accomplished singer, songwriter, and guitarist, he is the executive director, the business side, and the producing artistic director for the Fairfield Theater Company, a position he's held since 2012. So as... uh, You know, as I mentioned earlier, we have an upcoming event, Band Central, partnering with FTC on Wednesday, May 17th. So I'm really happy uh, John is with us today. Welcome, John. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks. And I appreciate the fact that you guys are are focused on FTC for this fundraiser, too, on, on May 17th. That's great. I mean... A lot of people don't realize we're a nonprofit organization ourselves. And as I say, we're just so cool. No one can figure that out. But, uh, <laughs> but, before, before, but hold on one second. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into um, FTC, yeah. I know I read your bio, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, how did you even become involved with FTC? Okay, so let me go back in time a little bit quickly. But uh, first of all, I didn't grow up around here. I grew up in uh, southern Mississippi. I moved there when I was five from Washington, D.C., and that certainly influenced uh, my uh, exposure to music. I started playing guitar when I was in my teens, late teens, and getting out and playing, you know, bars, restaurants, and things like that. And, and music was, was really, uh, I'm going to say, my first and closest love in many ways. But I also did theater and acted and uh, uh, did a fair amount of theater, and, and I was always on the performance side. And, and then at some point, I made the mistake of letting someone know that I could do something like build something or, you know, or book something. So immediately you, you end up on the production side to some degree. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. 
You know, so along those lines, I was uh, gigging regularly. Uh, by this time, I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, which was a great music scene yeah, back in the seventies and the in the eighties. And um, you know, I, I had a day job, which became a career. And that day job was uh, working for an international humanitarian organization, which to me was kind of my day job. And then I would go off to play a gig that night, and and. Uh, Without realizing over a course of a few years, I suddenly was taking more and more responsibility. And, and before I knew it, I was 20 years working in international humanitarian organizations, traveling around the world, speaking, raising money, doing everything required to do that. These were some, some really large agencies. Moved to New York in the mid-'80s working for... So you, so you were on track to be running the United Nations. That's kind of what I'm getting here. <laughs> well, Steve, well, right. is, he's on his way to New York now, so I think well, we're going to hear the... Well, I, I if he made it. it. But, but, but then, then there's got to be a mistake that brought him <laughs> exactly. to see. Well, I ended up at CARE, which was, uh, you know, the famously the CARE package from the 1940s post-war, and they were one of the largest. A massive operation. They were largest. We, yeah, we yeah. had 25,000... Uh, Excuse me, forty thousand staff in, in uh, twenty five thousand staff in forty countries, and and uh, I was with the U.S. office. But yeah. I and and I uh, actually, while I, that was my day job, again I was working from you know I was early so seven in the morning till four or five in the afternoon. Then I had to the theater. I worked for the Roundabout Theater for a couple of years mm. as a producing director of their conservatory and their ensemble company. Okay, yeah. and I had gone there to take class, but mm. again I've you know I said something to the. Uh, the now late uh, Gene Feist, who was the founder of the round, but <clears throat> there's something about improving the conservatory a little bit. Next thing I know, I was writing a report for him just to kind of, and, and so I was doing that at the same time. And, and um, that career in humanitarianism uh, took me then to World Vision, which had, you know, 30,000 staff in 100 countries, and Eventually, the chief operating officer. It's a huge job. I had a, a ton of responsibilities. And, and, and tell our listeners just a little bit about that, uh, the mission for, for that organization. Well, it's quite uh, compelling. You well, know? well, World Vision, really, their focus was on the world's poor. They were the large child, largest child sponsorship agency in the world, mm-hmm. sponsoring a child in India or Africa or someplace like that. And, and uh, a really impressive organization. And, and from there, I then went to two more child welfare and children's mental health organizations. By the way, by the way still gigging in the evenings uh, less because as the jobs got bigger and bigger, it was harder for me to take time. You know, out. it's funny because I have people sometimes say, I was gigging at times while I was working at Bridgewater. And people say, wouldn't you get exhausted? And I would explain to them, the gigging gives you energy. Right, exactly. <laughs> that, was, that was the fun part. That was the reward at the end of the day, although it's hard work too, as you no, know. Yeah. And anyway, so very long story short, I was working for an agency called Child Help, which was the largest agency in the country focused on the treatment and prevention of child abuse. Got a call from a headhunter talking about the Hole in the Wall Foundation, which was one of Paul Newman's charities. As things turned out, my wife and I were ready to move back east. We were, we were living in Arizona at the time, and her family was from around here. So I took that position, and a great organization, and they were, again, focused on kids at very high risk. Uh, one of the first things I did was uh, help produce a uh, concert at Lincoln Center that we had there that uh, headlined by Stevie Wonder, who volunteered his efforts, and a number, mm, just a beautiful. number, number of wonderful people. But uh, that, that job, within a couple of years, I had combined the two organizations I worked for, and I knew it was time to do something different, and so... This is where the serendipity comes. My neighbor uh, was Paul Newman's youngest daughter, uh, whose husband was on the board of FTC, and they were they lived a few houses down. 
So I had them over for dinner. I said, you know, first time in my life I have a little bit of time on my hands. I'd love to volunteer. Mm. You know, I've worked for so many nonprofits, and you can't really volunteer for the organizations that might be doing the same work. She said, well, you're a musician. What about FTC? And funny, I'd been in town two years. I didn't know what FTC was. In fact, I saw something in the parking lot that said stage one in this warehouse. I thought it was a sound stage for producing commercials. I'd done some commercials when I was a young guy, something similar to that. Mm, yeah. So she said, no. I said, Fairfield, Th- I said, no, I'm not interested in theater anymore. She said, no, it's music. It's a music venue. And I said, well, listen, I'll be happy to, if they could use some volunteer uh, work, you know, I, I, I don't want to be on the board or anything, but I, you know, I do have some experience. Maybe I could have some ideas. That was my thought. My grand notion was I would volunteer for them. I sent uh, Kurt, who was on the board, her husband, a resume, and he called me back with a few minutes. He said, I've got another idea for you. Don't say no. And I, I'm, I've been around <laughs> long enough to immediately say no when someone says that. The other idea was the the founder and former director had left several months before that. Yeah, we're talking about Miles Merrick. That Miles Merrick. a friend of ours who... who really initiated this partnership with Fairfield Theater Company and Absolutely. Band Central. Um, and, uh, long, long but, I, but, I, but I will say, well, I will say what John has done at Fairfield Theater, just observing it as somebody who's, I've performed at Fairfield Theater over 80 times yeah, in, in 17 years, mm. yeah. um, and I've seen how it runs and the quality of it. Um, you you really everything you talked about about running these organizations under, understanding a nonprofit as a business you have taken Fairfield Theater and the warehouse and the whole all the projects to a level of uh, business efficiency that is really been you know great for the theater but also great for the community the um, so I'd like you to talk I'd like you to f- fast forward to write to today and just give us an update on what are the main priorities of Fairfield Theater, not only as a music venue, but as a nonprofit organization in our community. You know, the uh, as a nonprofit, and the part that really resonated for me, we are a community-based organization. We, we do have a couple of, I may say, great venues. We have 200 live concerts a year between the two venues. The third venue, as I was telling you guys earlier, we turned our parking lot into a third venue. We're getting ready to build a permanent stage there there as well. But really, in the end of the day, it's the, it's the quality of life. It's the joy we bring to the community. And nothing struck me so hard as when the pandemic hit, and we had to we had to basically empty the place out. Of course, I was I, I never stopped going to work, but um, and I remember walking around through the through the campus when the place was completely empty and the pandemic had hit, and nobody knew what the heck was going to happen from that. And what really struck me was how much the community needed music and film and theater yeah. and comedy, all the things we were doing more than ever before. I mean, there was a hunger and a thirst. And, and some of those early shows, you guys remember, pretty bizarre. We had to cover the uh, the area with plexiglass oh, to, yeah, to create definitely. barriers between sure. between the musicians, between the audience, et cetera. And, and uh, yeah, it was, I remember going there. I thought, well, this is really, this is weird. Mm. <laughs> this is odd. But, but 
I was grieving inside primarily thinking about the need, the hunger people had for love. Because to me, music is one of those things. You can, you listen to a song, close your eyes, and you go back 20 years to when you first heard it, 30 years, 40 years. I'm getting older. I can go back a lot of years. But, but, uh, and, and, and that was the thing. And I, and I could just tell it. And by the way, the town of Fairfield wasn't allowing any outdoor shows at that time. I just thought it was, it was, it was just heartbreaking. And, and, yeah. and yeah, was, we're, we're listening, we're listening to John Reed who's the executive director and artistic director at Fairfield Theater Company. We're here on Band Central Radio. This is Rob Freed, and we've got Steve DeCostanza in the studio. We're having a, a good time talking to John about, you know, about Fairfield Theater, not just the idea that they have shows 200 times a year and really keep us always having always wanting to check out their calendar and see what's going. But, you know, I think there there are other things that you, you do for the community, just, you know, the local restaurants benefit. Um, you know, Fairfield Center is very vital right now. And, you know, if if a large corporation was thinking of moving to Connecticut, or moving out of Connecticut, you know, like some of them think, yeah. you know, you, you might think twice when you think about, hey, there's a burgeoning arts and music scene. And I, I think Steve can speak to this as well. You yeah, know, that I mean, PKN sure. being WPKN as a, as a nonprofit mm. organization that is solely devoted mm. to artists and kind of what you described, the well-being of our right. community. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, any, of course any, for us during COVID, you know, WPKN tried to fill that void of not having any live music. And, right, right. Uh, I mean, luckily we were able to get through it, you know, and stay open and, and still kind of do a 24-7 approach. But, uh, yeah, to have live music back is is, uh, is is something that was sorely needed. And you guys have really you've put together two great uh, operations. And uh, the, 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 you know, stage one, is one of the most uh, attractive sounding listening, uh, room. listening rooms yeah. ever. It's like really being in, in your living room and the acoustics are incredible. It's, well, it's, it's a Shakespearean, yeah. for those who haven't been there, it's a Shakespearean thrust stage, which means the stage goes out into the audience. So the artist gets to see the audience on three sides. It's a black box black theater box of sorts. Oh, yeah. And when stage one is sold out or close to sold out, for the musician, it's unreal. Um, all, all the musicians from around the world, their feedback of stage one is just, you know. It really is. And, and I, I, honestly, I can't take credit for that because that that existed before me. I can take credit for not messing it up and making sure that we <laughs> improve the sound and lighting and stuff like that. But we've left that as a black box theater because it's a phenomenal listening room. And when I started playing music in the, uh, in the very early 70s, um, you know, we had coffee houses that were listening rooms, and you would go and listen. I remember those days if someone sneezed, everybody kind of turn around, stare at them. Oh my gosh, you made, you're not listening to the music, and and being brought up like that, and playing in, in an environment like that. You know, really, it just I have to say, when I first came to the first show, I came to at FC. I had never been to a show, by the way, by the time. When, when, oh, uh, even when, when you were at Holman Wall and yeah. No, I, I didn't know about it. I, I drove by again and, and I was traveling 70% of the time, mostly internationally, so I wasn't in town much. But uh, as soon as I walked in that black box, which was very similar to a second stage of the Roundabout Theater, I had called the Susan Block Theater. And I produced and acted in, I don't know, 20, 30 shows in, in that theater. And it was very the similar size. It was 220, 250 cap room. And I thought, wow, this is just what a brilliant space 
to re-remember because now it's all about big spaces, the larger the act and stuff like that. I love that intimacy. Mm-hmm. One of the first so show, one of the first shows I went to at FTC after I started was John the Great John Mayall. And first of all, I couldn't believe that John Mayall was playing a 200 cap room. <clears throat> right. And yeah. he got up and he said, he looked around and he said, this is like playing in my own living room. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Mine, this is like you playing in my living room. I feel like this, this is great, fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and i got to say, the staff, the Rob Martin now, the Those team, you know, it's, all uh, you, you're, you just feel like you're getting class yeah. all the way. So let, let's, let's talk a little bit about a little future looking. Like you mentioned the new stage. Yep. So this will be a third stage in the parking lot in of FC4. But what, what are the main, you know, priorities right now for FTC? Um, you know, as, and, and, and how could people, like people that are listening, how can they get involved? What, what are the ways to get more involved with FTC? I know there's a membership. You can become a member. What, sure, what's included if you become there, a member? Well, membership usually gives you access to shows that on sale before anyone else, so you can get the best seats. Um, and it's also a way of supporting the theater. Quite frankly, most members, while they do get benefits, we do a number of free shows for our members. Uh, some of the up-and-coming artists that we're bringing in, we'll make those free to members. Um discounts uh, on tickets and things like that. But really most of them do it because they want to support FTC. They realize the sort of the vibrant role that we play in the community. And I think when I look at the future, one of the things that, that is clear to me is that the more that we can do to to really make the FTC experience a part of the community and the community part of that experience, meaning that it's not just a music venue, it's not just a place to see a film, it's all that. But it really is. This is the community's venue. In fact, I have some of the stuff I'm proudest of are the uh, nonprofit fundraisers that we host there. And, and it's true, the nonprofits, you know, rent the space from us, but we produce shows and we our whole team goes at this. And I got to tell you, you've been to, I know you've been to a lot of those fundraisers, but it really makes a difference. And the ability to, the capacity building to help our colleagues that are that are in a lot of organizations are very meaningful are doing a great job. Yeah, I, I do want to say if you are if you are a nonprofit listening and you're thinking about where to do an event, and I'm not I'm not pitching you now, but I am just telling you, from my experience, the ability to have people use the foyer in the art gallery for a reception area yep. for an hour so people can mingle before a show, have a drink or two, then hear the lights flicked, move into a theater that's very comfortable to be in, that can be set up according to your likes and dislikes if you want dancing, and then have this intimate living room experience, experiencing music that's not blaring at you, that sounds yep. really good. Um, it's a, also a perfect setting for, in the middle of a show, having... Uh, a, a speaking program where, you know, you can come up and actually talk to an audience and you can see their eyeballs. You know, it's not like you're separate from way back. Yep. So it's it's really uh, a premier uh, live music fundraising venue. And I, I think the cost, you've, you guys have kept the cost for nonprofits very cost re- reasonable. Really, really reasonable. Yeah. Significantly less for nonprofits. And again, it's, it's part of... Uh, if you think about it, uh, everything we do, uh, FTC, all of us, uh, music, the arts, culture, that's, in my mind, the tiebreaker for a place. I will tell you, growing up in a, in a smaller town in southern Mississippi, there was not a lot going on. <laughs> now, there was some phenomenal music that was being uh, put together, you know, but, you know, not in plain sight because of the, because of the uh, 
segregation in those days, things like that. But but there, you know, most people say that uh, a, a significant part of the greatest music in the world, you know, had its origins in Mississippi and came through. But mm. to be here in Connecticut and you know around here, the music scene is just thriving. It's extraordinary. There are so many opportunities now to go to a show and great musicians local musicians as well as the touring musicians just a phenomenal uh, wealth of talented people yeah yeah and we have an event we're doing together on may 17th you know one of the things uh we do with band central is we we want to support these partners that we work with and one of those that has been you know very loyal and helpful to band central over the years is is the theater and we, we know for sure the importance of arts and music as it's connected to well-being and healing. That's why Band Central and the Band Central Fund are a supporter of WPKN as well as the theater. So what we're doing on May 17th, we're kind of combining a couple things. It's, you know, a rock show featuring Joe Bouchard, who was one of my heroes growing up. Uh, when, you know, growing up in this area, we got into, before Led Zeppelin, there was Blue Oyster Cult. And it was really edgy, good, great rock and roll. But I'm also having... Musicians join me from around the country that I've been playing music with for 50 years. And the bass player who played with Susan Tedeschi before she joined with um, Derek Trucks, um, some really great cats. They're flying in from San Diego all over. And we've all played with Joe Bouchard before, so it's kind of a reunion gig. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is there's probably about 20 seats left if you include standing room (laughs) because it's going to turn into a bit of a, a... uh, uh, a reunion, but I would encourage you to go to fairfieldtheater.org, check the show out on May 17th. You can get a couple t- seats. Um, you can, um, you know, meet us there. And um, uh, so, you know, thank you, John, for, for well, hosting us. Thank and you. also, um, we're, we feel really good about, about being a contributor to the future of the theater. I truly appreciate that. I really do. I mean, it's, listen, FTC doesn't belong to me. You know, this it belongs to the community. I'm a steward of this wonderful organization for these, you know, now uh, 11, 11 plus years. Right. But, but, but everything at FTC belongs mm-hmm. to this community, purely and simply. Yeah, we're all very fortunate to be living in this community. We right? are. Yeah, we are. Well, good, good show. Yeah, Rob. wait a minute, yeah. wait, wait. Oh, oh, hold on here, guys. Oh, there it is. Oh yeah, that's that's our there we that's go. our closing music. Right. The groove, the All groove right. juice. Yeah. Okay. Here we are in the groove. Yeah, John used to host a program. We got less than a minute here. John used to host a program or participate a program here on PKN. So this, so this is his first that's time true. coming back to these beautiful studios here at 277 Fairfield Avenue. What a pleasure to a little, see the place. A little different, now. right? Than it's the, fantastic. The, uh, the old jigs. Really yeah, fantastic. I love it. Hey, you know, if you want to, you can email me at Rob Freed. I'm at refried at optonline.net. You can also sign up for our newsletter by visiting experiencebandcentral.com. I want to say thank you to uh, Audrey Neforis, Paula Murphy, and Andy Cadison for my team. And to our guests, Rob Somerville, John Reed, and Steve DiCostanza. Our next show is... Uh, is Monday, the fourth Monday in May. I don't have the date. I don't have the date with me, but we're gonna.